And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What says my Lord to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Put off thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place on which thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 65, Ethereal Angels and Sacred Sand. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Ages ago, a Jew died somewhere. So starts one of the most famous of Yiddish stories, Dry Matonis, Three Gifts, by Yitzchak Leibush Peretz. Peretz describes the soul of this Jew arriving in heaven and standing in judgment, during which spiritual sacks of his deeds performed in life, both good and bad, are brought to a scale to be weighed as the shamas, or sexton, of the heavenly court oversees the process. Peretz goes on, quote, The angels empty their bags slowly, solemnly, speck by speck, particle by particle, the way simple folk auction prayers, penny by penny. But even a well runs dry, at last the bags are empty. Is that it, asked the court, Shamus, also an angel among angels? Both good and evil spirits turn their bags upside down. There's no more. The Shamus comes forward to see where the arrow has stopped, to the right or to the left. He looks and looks and sees something that has never happened since heaven and earth were created. What's taking so long? asked the chief judge. The shamus stammers. Even. The arrow stands at dead center. The bad deeds weigh the same as the good. Exactly the same? Again, a question from the judgment table. The shamus takes another look and answers, To a here. The tribunal deliberates and hands down its verdict. Since the bad deeds do not outweigh the good, the soul does not belong in hell. On the other hand, the good deeds do not outweigh the bad, therefore one cannot open the gates of paradise. Let it wander aimlessly. Let it fly around in midair between heaven and earth till God reminds himself of it and takes pity and beckons it unto him in his mercy. So Peretz writes, and then goes on to describe how the despondent soul is entirely crestfallen until he receives advice from the shamus of the heavenly court. He says, Hover close to the world of the living and see how life is, see what's happening. And if you see something unusually beautiful and good, seize it and fly up with it. It will be a gift for the saints in paradise. And with the gift in your hand, knock and announce yourself in my name to the sentinel angel. Say I told you to. And when you've brought three gifts, rest assured the gates of paradise will open to you. The gifts will do their work. At God's seat, it is not the well-born who are loved, but those who've come up the hard way. The story goes on to describe the search for and the discovery of the three gifts that allow the soul into paradise. And one of them speaks to our subject today the millennia-long Jewish belief in the metaphysical magnificence of the land on which Israel, crossing the Jordan, finds themselves for the first time. After the splitting of the Jordan, Israel experiences more moments that are obvious recollections of the Exodus experience. The Passover offering is brought, but another ritual must first be performed for those born after the Exodus before they can partake in the holiday celebration. Chapter 5, verse 4. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. The fact that the younger Israelites, born in the wilderness during the 40-year sojourn, are not circumcised until now, is striking and mysterious. And the Talmud has various suggestions as to why the conditions in the desert would have precluded the performance of this Abrahamic rite. 
But one thing is clear. Since circumcision is a necessary precondition for the Paschal ritual, the Israelites here are reminded that they are taking the covenantal place of those that first brought the Paschal lamb in Egypt. Verse 8, And it came to pass, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were recovered. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the shame of Egypt from off of you. With the fullness of their Israelite identity embraced, the Pesach, Paschal celebration, is observed. And as the Exodus is relived, something else occurs that allows Israel to understand that in a certain sense, the Exodus is over. Verse 11, And they did eat of the grain of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain that very day. And the manna ceased on the morrow when they ate of the grain of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the produce of the land of Canaan that year. So the manna will no longer fall. Unlike in the wilderness, Israel is now tasked with agricultural cultivation. Yet with the task of cultivating the land, Israel is all too aware that this land is unlike any other. There are many laws in the Torah that apply only to the produce of the land of Israel, the rules of first fruits, of tithes, and much else. This reflects, for Judaism, the very sanctity of the soul, the fact that this is the Holy Land. The very phrase, Holy Land, reflects the biblical premise that to be in the land of Israel is to be closer to God's presence than anywhere else on earth. And this, perhaps, is the meaning of another encounter in Joshua that provides profound parallels to the Exodus story. With the observance of the Passover behind him and the battle against Jericho about to begin, Moses' successor meets an ethereal angel of the army of the Lord who arrives to assure him a forthcoming victory. Chapter 5, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went over to him and said to him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, for I am captain of the army of the Lord. I am now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What says my Lord to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Put off thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place on which thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Remove your shoes. This is exactly what Moses is called to do in the desert when an angel calls out to him from the burning bush. Again, a parallel between Moses and Joshua, between Exodus and entry into the Holy Land, is established. And yet, in the very comparison, we also see striking differences. That Moses is informed of the holiness of the site of the burning bush is entirely understandable for he stands on Mount Sinai, the selected site of the Decalogue's declaration, the location of the most important moment in human history. But, as Rabbi Michal Hatin notes, Joshua encounters the angel in one site of many in the land of Israel, near the city of Jericho. But there does not seem to be any reason why that place is more spiritually profound than any other in the land of Israel. And that, perhaps, is precisely the point. I am inclined to interpret this tale and this is inspired by Rabbi Hattin's book on Joshua, which has its own extensive discussion of this story, that Joshua's encounter with the angel is meant to signify to Joshua the very holiness of the entire land that he has just entered, a land that is unlike any other. Joshua removing his shoes, in other words, will set the stage for Israel's every encounter with the dust of the Holy Land, all the way to thousands of years later when Soviet Jews and other immigrants who had come to Zion alighted from the plane and kissed the tarmac.
The ground on which they bow down may seem ostensibly like any other, but we believe that it is not. And what is true of Jews in the Holy Land is also true of those that longed for the Holy Land throughout the centuries. For there were Jews that lived many miles away from the land, Jews who had never been to the land, but who would do what they could to lay their hands on a bit of earth from the land in order that it be placed into their graves, wherever they may ultimately be buried. And it is this that allows for the first gift in Peretz's story. The wandering soul finds an armed robbery taking place at the home of a Jew. This Jew is wealthy and for the most part seems not to mind that his possessions are being taken by these brigands bearing knives. Quote, But the Jew stands at knife point and looks on calmly. Not one hair of the brows over his clear eyes, not one hair of the white beard that reaches to his loins can be seen to stir. No concern of his. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, he thinks. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One isn't born with wealth. One doesn't take it to the grave, his pale lips whisper. And he looks on quite undisturbed as they open the last drawer of the last chest and drag out bags of gold and silver, bags of jewels and all sorts of precious ware. He is silent. Maybe he is renouncing them all. Suddenly, when the thieves come upon the last hiding place and draw forth a little bag, the last and best hidden, he forgets himself. He is all a tremble. His eyes flame. He stretches forth his right hand, preparing to scream, Don't touch that! But in place of a scream, a red jet of smoking blood spurts out. The knife has done its job. It is the blood of his heart, and it spurts onto the bag. He falls, and the robbers swiftly tear open the bag. The best, the most precious of his treasures will be here. But they've made a bitter mistake. They've spilled blood for nothing. No silver, no gold, no jewelry is in the bag. Nothing worth a high price in this world. There is only a bit of earth. Earth from the Holy Land intended for his grave. And it was this the rich man tried to rescue from the hands and eyes of strangers and spattered with his blood. The soul seizes a blood-soaked speck of earth from the Holy Land and appears at the little window of heaven. Its first gift is accepted. The story goes on to describe the discovery of the other gifts, each an embodiment of Jewish persecution and also of steadfast faith and pride in all that Judaism proclaims. But as we get to the end of the story, Peretz himself seems to voice skepticism about the pragmatic value of this faith. As the soul ultimately earns entry into paradise, we are told that, quote, the eternal voice declared truly beautiful gifts, unusually beautiful. They have no practical value, no use at all, but as far as beauty is concerned, unusual, end quote. This is perhaps Peretz's view, but it is not the view of many who love this tale. And if this story is so beloved, and it is, I was told it as a child, without Peretz's ending. It is because many Jews believe that Peretz does truly bring to life, throughout much of the story, the love of Jewish generations. And when it comes to the first gift, Peretz highlights something profoundly true about the Jewish relationship throughout history with the Holy Land. The people of Israel will not only cultivate the crops of the land, it will cultivate a love of the land, a love not only within the heart, but inside the soul. And we can draw a line from every Jew that asked to be buried with a bit of sacred earth, and from the Jewish return to the land in our time, all the way back to the original dust on which Joshua's bare feet stood so many thousands of years ago. This point was made by the man who expressed his love for the land of Israel perhaps more eloquently than any other in our history, poet Judah Halevi, 
who wrote of the sacred soil of Eretz Yisrael in poignant verse, and also brought his masterwork of Jewish thought, the Kuzari, toward conclusion with these words. Quote, This sacred place serves to remind men and to stimulate them to love God, being a reward and promise. As it is written, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones and embrace the dust thereof. This means that Jerusalem can only be rebuilt when Israel yearns for it to such an extent that they embrace her stones and dust. End quote. And this means that return to the Holy Land is brought about not only by statesmen and strategists, though that can be critical. An important role will be played throughout the centuries by humble Israelites who will cultivate a love of the land, like Judah Halevi. And if there is a picture that captures this message, it can be found in one of the less famous photographs by Israel's most famous photographer. We have previously discussed the writer Yossi Klein Halevi's encounter with David Rubinger, who took the picture of Yitzchak Yifat and other Israeli paratroopers at the wall in 1967. Yossi Klein Halevi describes his visit with Rubinger as follows, quote, Rubinger's living room was a photographic gallery of his work, a reminder of why he has become our most important visual chronicler. For all his irony and disappointment, he is hopelessly in love with Israel's story. There on the wall were Israel's defining images. Egyptian President Anwar Sadat whispering to Prime Minister Menachem Begin, Begin tenderly placing a shoe on the foot of his wife Aliza, a kerchiefed elderly woman clutching the gravestone of her son who fell in the Yom Kippur War while her bearded husband sits on the ground beside her staring blankly, a slumped Golda Meir holding her head on the day her government fell. Crowded among all the other images were Yitzchak Yifat and his friends. Which one is your favorite, I asked him. Wordlessly, he led me into his study and pointed to the lone photograph hanging over his desk. It depicted a blind boy, a new immigrant in the 1950s, wearing a kova temple, the conical kibbutznik's hat, his mouth open in wonder. He strokes a relief map of the land of Israel. I call it seeing the homeland, Rubinger explained. For a photographer, blindness holds a special terror. Yet this boy, Rubinger was saying, was teaching us that love provided a deeper way of seeing than mere physical sight. End quote. The place on which you stand is holy. So the angel announces to Joshua. The land of Israel is holy. And from Jews in Poland buried with sacred soil to a blind boy embracing the land in the 1950s, the holiness of the land has sustained the Jewish people. And it will still. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.